Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. What can you learn from getting around the right investors? Well, just a ton. And as we wrap up April, we've got a great interview for you today on the Real Estate Guys radio program. Choosing the right market is one of the most important decisions you need to make as a real estate investor. You're looking for infrastructure, diverse and durable industry, and the right kind of jobs. So let's see if you can spot this market. It's home to more than 80 accredited universities, a Federal Reserve Bank, and more than 1,200 multinational companies. Need some more hints? It's one of the top 10 MSAs and is home to 10 Fortune 500 companies, including UPS, Coca-Cola, NCR, and Home Depot. Still stumped? It's third on the list of most Energy Star buildings in the U.S., has the second tallest hotel in the Western Hemisphere, and it boasts the world's busiest airport. Did you guess Atlanta? You're right. And there's so much more to discover about Atlanta, including the specific neighborhoods where fully rehabbed houses cash flow like crazy, yet sell to investors for far less than $100,000. So come take a look. Join the Real Estate Guys investor field trip to Atlanta, Georgia. For all the details, visit realestateguysradio.com and click on events. Experience this incredible market for yourself and hang out with the Real Estate Guys. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio show. I'm Robert Helms, your host, and joining me as usual, our co-host, financial strategist, Russell Gray. Hey, Robert. How's it going? Awesome. This has been a great month. You know, to recap uh, April, we started the April 1st with our April Fool's Day show, Donald Trump in the house. Great interview with Donald. Uh, the next week, we talked to Tom Wilson, a successful engineer turned full-time real estate investor. What a great story. Week after that, the 15th, we were on the 10th Annual Investor Summit at Sea. We heard from great folks like Robert and Kim Kiyosaki. We heard from Tom Wheelwright and Andy Tanner and Garrett Sutton and Ken McElroy. And then, of course, last week uh, we had the great interview with Ryan Heinricher talking about how he went from banking to uh, real estate investing. So we're going to wrap up today with yet our final interview in the series of Getting Around the Right Folks. And we're going to pick a guy's brain who's been in the real estate business a long, long time. You know, you can't spend too much time with people that have been there, done that. And the more perspectives that you can get, the, the more feedback you can get, the more insights you can get. And the thing is, it's like learning to speak your native language. You pick things up through nuances. It's not always so much exactly the words or what they say or what's written in a book. Sometimes it's the attitude. Sometimes it's just the way they come across. You watch them operate. And, you know, after spending a week with a bunch of different people from all over the world on the cruise, you get a chance to see how people think and how they react and playing games like the cash flow game. You watch how people make decisions. So there's a lot to be said for finding every opportunity you can to get around people. And sometimes those people are right in your own backyard and you don't take the time. Absolutely. And so think about who's in your world that you might talk with, who's successful, not necessarily just in real estate investing, but in life. And pick that person's brain because there's a lot of information. And the brain we're going to pick today is a big one. He's been with us, oh, many times, in fact, because he actually is a uh, semi-regular on the show and he's been investing since 1957. Let's say hello to the godfather of real estate, Bob Helms. Hi, Robert. Russ. How you doing? Oh, great. Thanks. You know, Bob, we have the opportunity to have you on the show as often as we can, and you always have great insight and uh, ideas and so forth. And I think over the years, as people have been listening, they've heard a lot of your story. If they've read our book, they've heard some of your story. But but we've really never sat down and said, you know, Bob, why all those years ago in 1957 did, did real estate make sense? I was kind of just assuming the reasons, right, as I got into real estate watching you growing up. But we thought it would make a great uh, show to, to really get your story. And, and all these years, we've, we've never done that. So uh, let's start at the beginning. Back in 1956, you were not a real estate investor, and I know it was a, a few days back, but what is it that got you interested or even aware of real estate as an investment back in the 50s? Interesting. Uh, the first property that I bought was kind of an accident. Uh, I was a college student at the time, had very little money. I was getting the GI Bill uh, which was helping to pay for my schooling. Your mother, my wife, worked in a bookstore. Our total income was around $400 a month, and that wasn't terrible, by the way, because three years later when I graduated from college as an electrical engineer, I started with a dynamite job with $550 a month, which was decent money. So the 400 we had wasn't bad. It just didn't go very far. Interestingly enough, we lived in a duplex near San Jose State University where I was going to school. There was another couple who lived in the other half. We became great pals we somehow took a weekend away to go up into the hills. And while up there, fell in love with a place in a little town called Boulder Creek. 
we got excited about buying a property we came across that was for sale. This was an interesting property, third of an acre, two buildings, a two-bedroom and a one-bedroom. Total price, $5,000. And terms... Not down payment, total no, price. total price, and the seller would carry back. All we needed to do was come up with $1,500. Well, the other folks in the duplex had their half. We had to hawk Dorothy's car in order to come up with our half. But... The terms were great. Once we came up with the down payment, payment was total payment, $50 a month until paid for. I didn't even know what the interest rate was because terms are much more important than price. All right. So you were renting a duplex with a couple that you didn't know to start with and then eventually became friends living next door to them, decided to buy this place together. Wow. How was $50 a month compared to what you were paying in rent? Do you remember? You know, I don't remember exactly what we paid in rent. I probably should, but that isn't coming to me. But 50 bucks a month was a lot. Again, it was over 10% of our income, about 15% or something like that. So that the 50 bucks meant that we had to split the payments. So each couple came up with 25 bucks a month. We figured we could just do the 25. Now, why did we buy this place? Well, we got excited, fell in love with it weren't really prepared. We hadn't thought about it, hadn't planned on it. It was a spur-of-the-moment thing. And what I've learned over the years, by the way, is we do a lot of spur-of-the-moment things. Our results are usually better if our preparation is better. So we were lucky in, in the sense that we were able to make this happen. But an interesting thing happened as we bought it. Not too long afterwards, the other couple became pregnant and couldn't afford the 25 bucks. Now we had a dilemma. What are we going to do? We've got $750 invested in this. If we could come up with the whole 50 bucks a month, we could keep it. We could maybe get another partner. Our solution, we decided to move up there, live in the place for 50 bucks a month, which was, quote, cheaper than the rent we were paying, although I don't remember exactly how much. Okay, so this wasn't a replacement for the duplex. You were still renting the duplex, and this was your weekend place. And then because of the circumstance with your partner, you ended up moving into the property. By the way, that's one of the flexibilities of residential property. If you own an industrial center, kind of hard to move in there if you have to. But in this case, you were obviously not forced, but uh, you were uh, you saw the advantage to maybe moving into to your, uh, your weekend place. We did, and it turned out that in order to do that, the car that we had hawked to get the $750 was a big Ford, and uh, we couldn't afford to drive it up to the hills, so we sold that car and bought a beautiful 1955 37.5 horsepower Volkswagen. Pretty ugly car. The heater didn't work, which turned out to be a little cool in the winter. But now you were you were owners in the property. Again, now you're on a property that has two houses. It's a, a large property with two houses. So What's the deal? You lived in one and rented the other? Well, we kind of rented the other. We actually, it turns out that my sister and her husband, your aunt, came and lived there with us for a while. And so, it, you know, we were all just out of school or still in school. And uh, we all had very, very low budgets. Uh, but that worked for them. They fell in love with the mountains, too. So we had, uh, had built-in neighbors and friends. Now, this is still in the 1950s. You didn't go on to become a licensee in real estate for many years. At this point, you're working as an electrical engineer. You're actually in sales and, and you're doing the thing, but you're now living in a place in Boulder Creek, a small town then, which is still a small town now. Uh, kind of walk us through the, the next progression. Now you've got ownership in a property and about sounds like it was about cash flow then more than it was about thinking about you know future rental stream or, or appreciation or any of that. It was definitely about cash flow. And in fact, from the time we bought it until the time we took it over from the other couple, I'm not sure of that time, but it was probably a year or maybe two. I didn't graduate from college until 1960. So I'm definitely still a student, still on the GI Bill. Your mom is still working. And, um, you know, we're using this place as, as a study hall. Other people come up on the weekends. We have a little fun. But when you're a student and an engineering student, believe me, all you do is study. That's your full life. All right. So uh, let's get to where you uh, finally do graduate. Now you got some decisions to make. And uh, how does real estate fit into that part of the story? Well, it's interesting because we continue to live in this place for a while, but it's not a great commute from there. When I, when I graduate from college, I go to work 
in a little town of San Carlos, which is, quote, up the peninsula toward San Francisco from San Jose, where I had lived and where I worked. You know, again, I, I am making the big bucks, 550 bucks a month. I'm a professional engineer, whatever that is. I have no idea because I end up in the marketing department, which is clearly where I belonged. However, it's just interesting what happens to you that you can't plan on and often do not expect. At this point, I have no illusions of being a real estate maggot. I, I really have been very fortunate to get through college, be able to have a property while not an amazing property is still a property, my first one, without a plan. I really have no plan whatsoever. Nobody in my family has ever been into the investing game. So certainly I'm not considering myself an investor. This is just a property that we managed to buy. Interesting things happen as the career goes along, however. First of all, I end up buying a brand new house in Sunnyvale, California in 1960. That's the year that I graduated. That brand new house is a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath, 1,550 square feet, nice house, hardwood floors, separate family room, price $19,950. Big money. And you know what? Even with my amazing $550 a month, I had to claim income from my guitar teaching that I was doing part-time in order to barely eke by and qualify for that loan. Okay, so you move into the house in Sunnyvale. What happens to uh, the property in Boulder Creek? Still own that? We own that, and we don't do anything with it for a while. We're using it on the weekends. It's kind of a weekend go-do-it-again. By the time I'm out of school, I'm not spending every waking minute studying, but it's still nice to have a place to come. Sister and brother, I, I'm not sure if they're still there. I don't recall if they how long they stayed in the place. But it's not a real estate rental yet. I haven't decided that that makes any sense. Eventually, it becomes a rental because... We're paying $50 a month for it, which is 10% of our budget. And uh, it doesn't make any sense to leave it empty when we're not using it. All right, we're talking to the godfather of real estate about how he got invested in real estate all those years ago. We'll hear more of his story when we come back. You're tuned to the Roasting Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helm. Live nationwide, you're listening to the Real Estate Guys. Find out more at realestateguysradio.com. Why is it that in every horror movie, there's a pretty girl who goes into a creepy house and heads down into the scary basement? Nothing good ever happens in the basement. What is she thinking? I feel the same way when I continue to see Americans dump billions into 401ks, IRAs, and mutual funds, even self-directed IRAs. On top of that, they continue to perpetuate the massive U.S. banking system by keeping large deposits at banks and using credit cards and other loans for purchases. Don't they realize what's going to happen? More profit for them and less profit for you. Nothing good ever happens in the basement. Now there's another way. Visit our friends at Paradigm Life by going to www.beerbank.com and learn how to become your own banker today. Live where you want to live, but invest where the numbers make sense. Even better, invest where you have a solid team to support you. We've been hearing great things about Memphis, Tennessee, and Terry Kerr from Mid-South Homebuyers. Since 2002, Terry and his team have been delivering turnkey rental property solutions ideal for out-of-area real estate investors. So if you're looking for affordable, trouble-free, turnkey investment property, call Terry. Use our resource hotline at 888-510-6838, extension 118. That's 888-510-6838, extension 118. Or find them in the resources area of our website at realestateguysradio.com. Hey, this is Peter Schiff, and when you're not listening to me at SchiffRadio.com, make sure and listen to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program, the number one podcast on real estate investing. I'm your host, Robert Helms, and our guest today, the man we call the godfather of real estate. He's been investing in seven different decades. Bob Helms is with us, and we're delving into to his story. So, Bob, you got a couple of houses, and, and that's all going well. You're not really yet a true real estate investor. You haven't set out to do that. Uh, walk us through kind of the evolution from I bought a house in the in the hills to, wow, this could be really exciting stuff. The interesting part is I had no plan. I really didn't plan to be an investor. This really happened by accident. And um, it's so interesting as we look at all the people out there today. Imagine with the times that we have today, what you could do if you had a plan. I wish I'd had one because it would have moved me up the curve by almost 20 years. Imagine if you really had a clue and you started 20 years earlier. Would that have been the right time? 
That's the best time to buy real estate 20 years ago. Yeah, it is. Well, interestingly enough, I ended up getting transferred to Southern California, going to work for a new company with a new opportunity. So now I have two houses in Northern California to rent out. I think this is the time I first start to get the clue. There are similarities in how this works, differences in how this works. Now, by the way, I'm doing it myself. I don't have a property manager. Hardly even knew there was such a thing. Why would anybody need a property manager? Certainly not for two houses. And as will happen to you, you start to learn the lessons of what goes wrong. The property up in the mountains, which was that first property I bought, uh, is cooking along nicely, except I start to have tenant problems. And sadly, I wasn't smart enough. I left some of my stuff up there. Among it was a a collection of uh, a couple little pistols that my uh, parents gave me uh, for graduation from college. They were put away somewhere, but these two little eight and nine-year-olds found them and uh, took them down to the park to shoot them. Yes, live pistols, eight and nine-year-olds. And uh, this came to my attention when I heard from the sheriff. So the first lessons start to come clear that you really need to have a plan. I don't even know what I used for a rental agreement, probably something I made up. But the lessons start to build up and you start to get a perspective on this. So one of the things that I'm noticing during this period of time is that prices are going up, values are going up. That little house that I paid $5,000 for, I don't know what its value is, but it's more than that. But I can see the house I bought in Sunnyvale for $19,950 is already worth twenty-five dollars or $30,000. So it starts to seep in that maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to do this again or do more of these. So you got transferred to Southern California, you actually kept the houses in Northern California. Did you buy or rent in Southern California? As it turns out, I really ended up having to sell the little house in the mountains because I could not rent a house in Southern California that would meet my needs. I ended up buying one. So the good news was I bought another property, a more valuable property. The bad news was my first mistake, I sold that first house. I didn't really realize what a mistake that was. I even made a little profit on it and had to pay taxes on it. It starts to add up after a while. You're starting to get the lessons. All right, so now you're uh, in a couple of houses. Uh, at some point, these are still houses that you're living in. You moved back to Northern California, moved back into what was the rental house. When did you start to really get that, you know, we should own some real estate other than the houses we're living in, bud? Kind of interesting. I had a neighbor down the street who was a real estate broker who kept leaning on me to come and join her office. Well, in these days, I'm now working for an electronics company in Southern California as a regional manager, putting in a solid three days a week. They're not looking for much more business. I have a lot of discretionary time. This lady keeps leaning on me to come join her office. I don't think it's anything I want to do, but eventually I decide to consider it and to look at it. My rationale, by the way, is that I'm only working three days a week. I can work the other four doing real estate, decide if I'm any good at it, if I like it. Well, an interesting thing happens because by now I'm beginning to get the investor mentality. The very first thing I sell as a real estate agent is a sixplex. Wow. I'm already an investor mentality. I just don't quite know it yet. So you're selling real estate while you're still in the electronics business and you're starting to get the bug. I am. And as it turns out, the electronics job, which is not really a good full-time job, dries up. You'd think that would happen eventually. And now I now have a dilemma. I either get to go find another electronics job or I get to decide, you know what, I'm a realtor. This is what I need to do. Of course, that's the decision I make. And at this point, I really am committed to the business, but I've also gotten the bug about hey, let's start working at building a real estate empire. All right, so I know some of the story, but the listeners don't. You decide you want to invest in real estate. You start talking it up to friends and family. They all think you're crazy. Uh, What happens next? Well, they do all think I'm crazy, and I'm not too sure. I really, I mean, I know that I like real estate. It's fun for me. I'm having a good time. First of all, I've been a sales guy and a marketing guy for 20 years, so I do have some sales skills. They're not hard to apply to real estate. The important thing is, I suddenly decide it's fun. I'm not only able to help people, I'm beginning to have a little fun and I'm starting to get good at it. However, probably the key turning point in my becoming a serious investor is I get my brother involved. 
My brother is also an engineer, making a good salary, and up to this point only owns one house, but we start looking at other properties that we can do together, where our dollars go further, we can share the work, etc. And that is really what finally launches us. By this point, I'm almost 20 years into the investing business, about 18 years into it, and I haven't done a heck of a lot. We can talk about what worked and what didn't, but the main thing is you got to get a plan. Well, we finally start to get one. So Bill and I get involved together. So the plan, although it's not very specific, is simply for us to get active in the game of acquiring additional real estate. And we do that to a fairly well. We buy a couple of small houses and we turn those over. We don't keep those very long. Yeah, this is a great story. You and your brother and a friend of yours bought three brand new houses in a row. I remember this distinctly because before the, any of the landscaping was done, we had one giant rototiller and we did all the, the backyards and the front yards together. We all worked for the entire weekend landscaping these three brand new houses that then you guys went on to sell at a profit. Yeah, we sold them at a nice profit because the market was just ripping. You couldn't get houses built quickly enough. You couldn't buy them quickly enough. So by this point, we've actually got the fever. We've got the mentality, and we can see the results right in front of us. You know, there's really two, lots of ways to invest in real estate, but there's two primary ideologies out there. One is I want to collect property I'm going to own forever that pays me more and more cash flow, and eventually I own it, and eventually it goes up in value. The other is I'm going to buy it, flip it, sell it, buy it, flip it, and sell it. There's a lot of that flipping mentality going on, but it's a great place to start because it does many times put the fire under somebody. You know, we hear story after story of an investor goes, you know, I just made $11,000 in seven weeks. That gets me excited. Seeing the result gets you excited. And in fact, the opposite is also true. I think one of the reasons I didn't do anything at the beginning is there was nothing going on. Things might have been appreciating in value, but if you don't sell it, you haven't realized any appreciation. So you're kind of passive. And suddenly, once you get the fever, now you can't be active enough. Now you're trying to do everything for you and everybody you meet. Yeah, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it does seem to me that part of the regrets that you have are doing things like relinquishing these properties. Uh, give us some uh, ballpark numbers, these three houses that you guys bought, what you paid for them, what you sold them for. At this time, I think we paid about fifty, fifty-five thousand dollars $55,000 for these houses. We turned them over very quickly, sold them for about $75,000. All right. So short term, that's a great, great return. What do you think they're worth today? Today, they're probably worth, in their ups and downs, four or 500000 something like that. All right. So that's what we call seller's remorse, right? When you get rid of a property that you wish you had still owned. Now, sometimes you have to do that. You had to let go of the property in the hill to buy the property in Southern California, which was, even though it wasn't an investment, a better performing investment when you look at it over time. It went up more in value. That was a better place to put your money. And as you start to transition from accidental homeowner into planned investor, you start looking at those kinds of things. Well, and let me really emphasize how important seller's remorse is. Because when you don't have a plan, everything seems like it's okay. And as we know, everything in real estate works. You just have to pick what you're good at and what you want to do. Here's what happens. I had occasion recently to summarize what I did in those first about 20 years. During that period of time, I bought nine properties. Those nine properties today would be worth about 10, 11, 12 million dollars. And they would throw off a half a million dollars worth of cash flow. What's wrong with that picture? Nothing except I no longer own them. All right, this is such a huge message for a guy that's been investing in seven different decades to say, here's where I missed the turn. I hope you guys are getting this, right? This isn't to say that flipping is wrong. It's not to say that a short profit is wrong. A short profit is taxed more. It You start looking at things like dealer status, and it becomes a business, not an investment. And so let's talk about the investment side. In our book, Equity Happens, there's the story of Bob's Big Boo Boo. And you're the Bob, and the Boo Boo is you held on to a property for a long period of time, sold it at a tremendous profit, but the boo-boo was not what we call optimizing the return. But before we get into the story, take us from we're buying and selling single-family houses to multi-unit, because that's a jump that a lot of people are looking to make. So I had a realtor friend in San Jose who brought me a deal that I didn't think we could pass up. We had an opportunity to buy an old, old property two old properties. One was a nine-unit Redwood Hotel in downtown San Jose, 
and next to it was a fourplex. The two were on the market together at what we thought was a really attractive price. We decided we couldn't pass that up. And while it wasn't a, a plan to necessarily go up in number of units, it was just a natural evolution, and it represented the best opportunity we could see. Okay, this is huge because we got lots of folks who are in individual houses, and, and they have a challenge mentally or emotionally or financially in making the jump to multi-unit stuff. In this case, it was a deal-driven decision. You saw the deal. The deal looked good, and you had to get over that. So it's been a few years, but but walk us through the mentality of, wow, we're, we're a couple of single family home guys and now we've got this hotel fourplex multi-unit downtown property yeah when this opportunity came up the real question was could we buy it did we have the wherewithal to buy it we actually had the ability to negotiate with the seller who was an old-time real estate broker and therefore understood the difference in price and terms we worked it out where we could come up with the down payment money. The question was, how do we finance a property like that? We had never financed one. And while there was some financing around, these were Mavericks. They were old. The hotel was 109 years old. The other unit was about 50 years old. So we had to go through a lot of work to come up with loans that worked. Eventually, we did. So we were able to close this kind of without knowing what we were buying. So when we got the property, we did a big walkthrough. We went through to see what we had, introduce ourselves to the tenants. I will never forget a little old man upstairs who had about five locks on his door. When we finally got the door open, he comes out with a pistol. Oh, my gosh. What did we do wrong? As you do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, nothing. He'd been in that room, it turns out, for 26 years. He was a reclusive kind of guy. He was nice enough when he, wasn't, uh, when he didn't have his pistol. <laughs> Anyhow, so it was just part of the introduction of this is a different kind of business. This was also definitely Class C property in downtown San Jose. All right, so this is a big jump, and I know you cut your teeth in a lot of ways on this property, and, and from there, just in the interest of time, we, we only have an hour together, uh, you bought many multi-unit properties, primarily in the San Jose area. Now, eventually, you got into other marketplaces and other states, in fact, but but for now, uh, let's talk about the big building, uh, 48 units that you bought. This was a big jump from you're doing these little six and seven and 12 and nine unit buildings, and now you've got a, a massive three-story building, and this is a this is a big jump. Not only that, the property was in a very unique situation. Well, there was some, inter it's a fun story in many ways. And tell you something else interesting, the same broker brought us this deal after we bought the other property. So there's a clue too. We take good care of the people that we work with who bring us deals. Do we want them to be well paid? Oh yeah. So they bring us this property and this property is very distressed. It's again a class C property. It's one block from San Jose State University. So it's a building that's controlled by the housing department of the, of the university. Uh, that changes over the years. But in those days, we had to meet their requirements. Well, the property was a disaster. And it needed a lot of work done. But it was at a bargain price. I think we paid $235,000 for the property. And that seemed like a lot, but there were a lot of units. It had the potential of having an awful lot of income, but it also had very high vacancies. It had a property manager who allegedly did the plumbing but didn't own a pipe wrench. It was owned by a doctor who probably had never been in the building. This looked good on paper for tax purposes, but the building was pretty ugly. All right, so this is a great lesson in itself. In fact, this is when I got introduced to real estate because I had a summer off uh, from school and uh, spent every day of it in that uh, building painting and moving and, and just schlepping stuff around and uh, really transforming it. And it became a very uh, well-oiled machine. You owned that property for a lot of years, the two of you, and you watched the rents go up and you watched the value go up. And one of the things that, that you didn't do much of was refinance it. And so the, since the story's in the book, we won't tell the, the whole story but but basically at the at the end of nearly 25 years you sold it for a tremendous profit yeah we did we paid 235,000 for it we sold it for 2.6 million that's a pretty good number and it sounds like an amazing success but as you pointed out earlier and as you guys point out in the book what we missed was the opportunity to optimize it we actually refinanced it one time for a fairly small amount 400,000 or something like that when you keep a property like that and you're able to operate it for 25 years what's going to happen 
you're going to pay off the loans, you're going to have tremendous cash flow as the market rates go up. Now, we didn't just spend the money in Acapulco, luckily, as we took in cash flow, we made some other investments from it. But we just didn't optimize it. All right. Well, that's a great uh, cue. When we come back, we'll talk about what does optimization mean and how could it have looked. And then we'll get some more uh, words of wisdom from the Godfather. We'll also play real estate trivia when we come back. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Real estate investment advice right in your mailbox. Sign up for the free Real Estate Guys newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. If you're like me and thousands of others, you know that the Real Estate Guys radio show is a great source for quality content about investing in real estate. But did you know that they also have a book? I just finished reading their book, Equity Happens, and I was blown away by how much I learned. If you're ready to create sustainable wealth through real estate, you need to get Equity Happens. You'll learn, just as I did, about what it takes to prosper in the real estate industry. So don't wait. Make Equity Happen to you. Order your copy today at equityhappens.com. As investors survey the country for markets and properties that will perform well for them over the next five to ten years, one market in particular stands out. That's Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta was the second fastest growing MSA throughout the last decade. It's home to the world's busiest airport and has one of the highest concentrations of Fortune 500 companies in the country. Atlanta is expected to add 100,000 new people every year for the next 10 years, and just next year alone, Atlanta is predicted to add over 50,000 new jobs. Now, what if I told you you could buy fully renovated, leased, and cash-flowing investment properties in this market for half of replacement cost? That's right, three- and four-bedroom homes in good suburban neighborhoods that can be purchased completely renovated for seventy dollars to $90,000. At Georgia Residential Partners, this is exactly what we do. We've been helping investors all over the country make solid real estate purchases in Atlanta for almost seven years. Call us today at 770-924-5450 or check us out online at gainvesting.com. Hi, I'm G. Edward Griffin, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. And you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. And welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. We're wrapping up our April series of getting around the right brains, investors of all sorts. And uh, today we've got the godfather of real estate. Before we get back to uh, Bob's story, let's play real estate trivia. A chance for you to win a prize by knowing the answer to today's trivia question. The prize? Well, it is the book that the godfather has written the foreword to, Equity Happens. And that can be yours, an autographed copy, in fact, if you know today's trivia question. In just a minute, I'm going to give you the question relating to, of course, real estate. And you are going to come up with the answer as soon as you do send us an email to trivia at realestateguysradio.com include your name and mailing address so we can send you this physical fat book and uh we're going to give away two copies one goes to the first person with the right answer typically someone listening on the radio then we'll take all the correct guesses for the week and have a drawing for a second book so if you're listening on the podcast you can still win last week on the real estate guys we had uh, the hidden beauty of blue chip investing with ryan heinricher and our uh question since we were in orlando florida was this the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando ranks as the second largest convention center in the U.S. by square footage. Name the first largest. The answer, McCormick Place in Chicago, the largest convention center by size in the U.S. Here's our trivia question for this week. Since we're interviewing The Godfather, I thought we needed to, to uh, hearken back to the old real estate guys days when we asked a lot of Godfather trivia. If you've been with us that long, my goodness. Uh, here we go. Part of the movie The Godfather takes place in Corleone, Sicily in, of course, Italy. However, the actual town of Corleone was far too developed by the early 70s when the movie was filmed to be used in the filming, and they used a different town instead. What town was that? Now, that sounds like a really hard real estate uh, Godfather uh, trivia question, but here's what I've learned about people that know the Godfather movies. They probably know right this second and are sending that email off. So uh, if you have a guess or if you think you know or if you're a Godfather fanatic, then you will get that answer to us to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. What was the actual city used to represent Corleone in uh, the Godfather movie? In fact, this is the city where you'll find the church that Michael got married in. So that's our real estate trivia question. We're talking about the Godfather of real estate. Bob Helms bought his first investment property in 1957. And boy, are there a lot of lessons there. We were talking about this idea of optimization, and, and you really can't take away from the success story. You bought a property for 235000 sold it for you know over $2 million. That's successful. 
But the point we tried to make in the book about optimizing is if instead you had looked at that as a long-term investment, a 25-year investment, rather than just buy and hold, what you could have done was reposition the asset. And the example we give in the book is just two simple transactions over 25 years. You would hold the property until it was worth a little bit more, do a 1031 tax deferred exchange into another property, and hold it for a little while longer and do that again. And the numbers get astronomical. So we're not going to tell the whole story since it is readily available in the book and a lot of listeners have heard the story. But what I want to get is to the mindset of paying attention to your investments and not just letting them sit there because they are, quote unquote, successful. I think it's one of the major mistakes people make. The momentum that you've got and what you're working on controls your focus and you forget about the things that are doing just fine. So doing just fine where you've got a property like this property, which had great cash flow, which management was under control, there weren't any changes, just ongoing things you had to do. There was not much focus. It was doing well, so we're looking elsewhere. I think it was the excellent management team you had in, in place. It, I, <laughs> I was the on-site manager in that building for uh, about six of my four college years. But uh, no, the, the thing is, this is a, this is a, such a big lesson because people buy a piece of real estate, they get tenants in there, they have a loan, and it's working. And so many times they just ignore it. They just let it sit there on autopilot. And you know that's okay. It just could be better if you pay attention. And I think that's one of the big lessons that, that we've uh, learned just watching your story evolve, Bob, is that there are things you can do to pump up your returns, to create double and triple the kind of returns that don't take necessarily double or triple the amount of work. Well, the most important part about plan, do, and review is plan. You got to start first. If you don't have a plan, if you don't do anything, you won't do anything wrong, but you just won't get anywhere. So it's so interesting that you, I think you've got to pick a periodic way to a time. Maybe it's once a year. Maybe you take a retreat, but you get back, you look at it, you say, what's working and what could we do to make it better? That's such a, a great point. I mean, that's kind of the, the mantra under which we, we run our businesses is plan, do, review. We set out the plan, we do the thing, and then we sit back afterwards and go, okay, how, how did it work? And the greatest thing about that is you can get the same kind of insights from somebody else's story. It doesn't have to be your. We look at your story and go, man, hundreds and hundreds of doors, millions and millions of dollars. This is a success story. And yet when you go back and re-engineer it, the knowing what I know now part is the, is the big part, right? There were 20 years there. Imagine you had poured it on for those 20 years. That numbers could have been extreme. The other thing is that you did have some some great synergy in the fact that you were still brokering real estate while you were owning real estate. You became, in fact, your best client, if you will, and you were sharing the gospel of real estate ownership from a guy that not only was just selling it to people, but but owned it. And I think you, you can't set that aside. That that's a That's a big deal. Ownership is a big part. It has a lot to do with your credibility. If you're playing the brokerage game and you're an investor selling to investors, believe me, you get their attention. You are the example. You're able to get their attention and keep it. So translate that into your and my real estate career, where for about 17, 18 years, we were selling day to day, and at least a third of our business on average was investment property. We used to do our first little seminars on building your real estate empire, where we'd come with a CPA, we'd come with a lender, in other words, some people who could help us describe it. And uh, those were small, we might have five people in a room like that, but it was an active part of what we were doing. And again, we had credibility, so much so that other agents throughout the company would refer their clients to us because what? We were the investment property guys. Yeah, so part of that is, is specialization. And, and you know, there's the whole issue of, does it make sense to get licensed? And I know you have a lot of energy on that. You taught a whole round table on the cruise. We're not gonna talk about that. But really what we're trying to get at is what are some of the, in, in, in you know, seven decades of investing, what are some of the big lessons, the big takeaways? In practicing what Brian Tracy would call zero-based thinking, if I knowing what I know now, what would I do different? What are some of those things that you might point out to people who are either just getting started or midway through their investment careers? Well, let's just start with today. Today, America is on sale, and so is a lot of the rest of the world. There's amazing opportunity out there. If you look at what can be done, if you're on top of this game, if you're educated, if you put a plan together, it's just phenomenal what the opportunity is. So as we look back and I contrast this, it isn't that I haven't been happy with what I've done, but it's so clear how much more could have been done with some focus and with some planning. So the most important part of this is that you've got to figure out 
what do I want real estate to do for me? If I'm excited about real estate, where do I want to end up with this? That's the beginning to having a plan is to get the outcome in sight. Well, and I think it might be different for, you know, folks that came from different backgrounds. Obviously, you as a salesperson ended up as a real estate broker. For other people, maybe their background is in construction or it's in finance or whatever it is, whatever skill you have, there's something that you can use towards your, your real estate investing. And part of the thing is to figure out who you are as an investor, as you, as you say, but then what's possible. So it's a great time to buy real estate. A lot of real estate's on sale, but you've been through highs and lows. You've been through the feverish times where everything sells in multiple offers and houses are going up 20, 30, 40% a year in some marketplaces. And then you've been through the times where you can't you know, get a, a, a sale. How do you keep focused depending on how the market's changing? Well, of course, we know you can make money in any kind of market provided you're educated and active. You got to get in and see what works because everything works somewhere for somebody at every time. So it's a matter of who do you need to be to play the game according to your plan? Where are you going? If Yeah, there are times when when you can't give away a house, what does that really mean? That nobody wants to buy it? No, simply that it's overpriced, that the terms don't work right now. For my objective, if I'm just buying a house to live in and I can afford to make the payment, totally academic. But if I'm buying investment property, I need this thing to cash flow. I need it to work for me in a way that I can support it. Whether you're a dead-on cash flow believer who says I would never buy anything that doesn't have cash flow, or whether maybe you say, in my portfolio, the net has to be positive cash flow. Depending on your belief system, there is a way that you can play this game. Excellent. All right. Well, another thing I think, of, as I look at your story, and obviously I'm a little closer to it than uh, most of our listeners, but just today, the things that you've shared, there's something that's coming up for me too. You talked about a broker friend of mine brought me this deal. My brother wanted to get involved, and that was the catalyst for us having a plan. We were shown a deal. How important is relationship and building relationships as a real estate investor? Well, of course, it's absolutely urgent. And there's a little side thing to that. I had a friend who brought me a deal. I had a brother who got involved. I had a son who got involved. That whole business about family, we won't beat this up, but it's important for you to decide who can be on your team. Who can you work with? If you have the advantage and the willingness to work with your family, that's a huge shortcut because they already know you, like you, and trust you. Allegedly. If they don't know you, like you, and trust you, the four-letter word is next. So if you have that advantage and want to do that, take advantage. If you don't, then you simply have to start one step back and go and find people and friends and associates that you can work with. We're talking to the godfather of real estate about his uh, long and uh, lovely investment career. We'll get back with Bob, and uh, we'll hear what Russell Gray has to say about this, too. He's chomping at the bit. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Need help with your real estate investment portfolio? Check out the resources page at realestateguysradio.com. Hey, Russ, wake up. We've got a show to do. Huh? Oh, sorry. I was just having the most awesome dream. I found low-cost rental properties that cash flow in a strong job market with prices that didn't fall through the floor during this great recession. Wow, that is awesome. But, you know, you don't have to dream to find a market like that. We're going on a field trip there in just a few weeks. Really? Where are we going? To Dallas, Texas. It's a huge market with great infrastructure and lots of people. Prices are low and rents are strong. And with today's low interest rates, properties cash flow great. And did you know Dallas is in the top three of all job markets? Plus, Texas is the number one rated state for doing business. That's amazing. There'll be tours of different submarkets and property types and meetings with local experts, including developers, agents, and property managers. That sounds great. Well, hurry up and register because space on field trips is always limited. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events or call 888-GUYS-RADIO for more information. That's realestateguysradio.com or 888-GUYS-RADIO. Hi, I'm Steve Forbes. You're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Listen up. And welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Check out our website at realestateguysradio.com and click on events. You can find out about our next set of field trips. We're going to a bunch of great places, including Dallas, Texas, very shortly, Atlanta after that, and Belize. We'd love to have you join us. We're talking today with the godfather of real estate, bought his first investment property 
1957 and uh, still has the real estate bug today. And I know one of the, the great joys you get today, Bob, is is just talking to investors. And, and I've seen some of the emails going back and forth since the summit and people just really appreciate your uh, openness and, and, and candor. I, I think a big part of who you are as, an, as a, an investor, as a person, is someone who wants to see the successes you have also be realized by people, but also people learning where you could have done it differently or better. Shortcuts are when you learn vicariously and the other person shows you what the mistakes are or what the positive steps are, what worked. So there's no lesson like the one you learned that you paid for yourself because it's always deep. You never forget it, but you don't have to stub your toe every time you decide I want to not do that. It's possible to, uh, to take some really good shortcuts. So in fact, it's interesting. I just got off the phone with a, a lady I met on the cruise. Today we're talking, and what she's talking about is stepping up to larger units. And we're talking about some of the ways you get to do that. She's recognized, for example, that she's already used up all of her own money. So are you dead? No, you got to figure out what, how to use some other people's. So you say, how many brothers do you have, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And of course, the way you do that is primarily through relationships and having credibility for, for your own actions. Um, so in addition to looking at how you come up with more money to buy bigger properties, the second question is, well, how do I find those bigger properties? Gee, it's right back to relationships again. It's always about who do you know that can help you get from where you are to where you want to be. You know, this is something that, that, you know, just as an observer of not only your career, but the way you deal with people is you have always been a great relationship builder. I often tell the story of going on those uh, listing appointments where, you know, I was being schooled by a guy who uh, was like the Mr. Get in and get out in 37 minutes and get the listing. Don't waste time. And we would go in together and it would be two of us. And he would, you know, say, wow, there's two of you shouldn't be there. Only one of you should do the listing presentation. You could be doing two listing presentations, right? And I would watch you sit with this family for four hours and, and talk mostly about them and their grandkids and what they wanted to do with their life. And I'm just sitting there going, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. But I, it was, wasn't long before I realized that that's where the magic happens. When you're forming a relationship with someone, and it's not that you read some handbook on how to do it, it's that you have a genuine interest in people. And so you naturally ask questions, want to know, want to see them be helped. I'm not saying it's not something that can be learned, but if you already have that disposition, that's probably a tremendous shortcut. I think it's a shortcut because everybody's interested in your interests, especially if it's about them. The more you talk, the less I, uh, I'm happy. The more I get to talk, the more I like you. Yeah, that's a really good point. So it's just a matter of taking advantage of the opportunity. But nothing happens if you're not sincere. And people get that. You have to show them that they are your primary interest. Well, and this is what we call enlightened self-interest, right? Because I would also watch you as a real estate broker. Uh, I remember the first listing presentation we went on. You had a listing of a bunch of single-family, brand-new houses. And, and I got hired as the young guy with a license, 10 bucks an hour, which was a lot of money back then, to sit on these open houses. And, and we didn't make a lot of money when we sold one of those houses. But the deal was we tried to get the listing from the house that they were selling to move in. And we went out to our first listing presentation, and we were all prepared. And I was all nervous. I had my little tie and my briefcase. And we we went in and basically you talked those people out of selling their house and buying the house from us. And, and, and I, I got out to the car and went, now, you know, I, I know I'm new at this, but correct me if I'm wrong. Aren't we supposed to get the listing? And I'll never forget. You looked at me and you said it wasn't the right thing for the client. And that's just, a, that's a huge testament to kind of the way you've run your business is that if it's not right for the client, and it's not just because, oh, he's a great guy. A year later, it was right for them. A year later, they did buy a house. We did get the listing. It's turned out to be a great success story for them. If you do the right thing for the client, you never have to worry about referrals, getting more business, that same person buying more. So many people in the real estate business are hunters. They get up and they got, they're hungry and they got to shoot and kill something. And that's, they're going to list it and sell it and never talk to those people again. And now the next day they have to the same thing. You and I know, or you, I can tell by the look on your face, you're thinking of a couple of people we've worked over the years who 20 years later, they have the same exact thing. They wake up and they're hungry and they got to hunt. They have no referral business. No one ever works with them again because that's not, nobody has a good time that they beat up their clients. It's terrible. On the other hand, when you become a, a valued, trusted advisor, confidant, a friend to people, then they do tons of business watching over the years when people would buy dozens of properties through you over the years. That became a great 
long-term revenue stream. And you only get to that if you have what we call and what Jim Rohn will call enlightened self-interest. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's such a huge piece of the business and people do teach it, but it's overlooked a lot. Referrals are one of the best sources of business you'll get. What does it take to get a referral? Generally doing a good job for somebody and then asking for the referral. Well, there's that part of it, too. All right. Well, Russell Gray, you uh, have obviously hung around The Godfather uh, quite a bit. I know you've been taking some note here. What are some of the epiphanies you've gotten from today? Yeah. So, you know, I came into the relationship with you guys uh, pretty much towards the end. I was there at the end of that 48 units. You guys had it for, I think, two, three more years after that and watched it get sold. And, of course, obviously had a big part in crunching the numbers and telling the Bob's Big Boo Boo story. But, you know, one of the things that I love to do is get around people that have done something and try to reverse engineer the process they went through. So to Bob's point, compressed timeframes. And what I watched Bob do as I listened to that entire story is go from accidental to intentional. And it was great, you know. And the other thing, he started out saying, hey, have a plan, have a plan. Well, I'm a guy who's known for plan, plan, plan. So it's going to sound funny coming from me. But a lot of the lessons he got, he learned by doing. He just got in the game. And I've learned that however you have to do it, you have to find a way to get in the game. And a lot of the best lessons do get learned. If you combine that with being around other people who are similarly in the game, that's a great way to get educated. So I wrote down this other thing. He said, you got to be educated and you got to be active. And then you talked right after that about relationships. And so I added educated, active, and connected. And if you focus on those three things and understand the education comes mostly by doing. And so I think if you just take a few of those little lessons, and I'll put them up on the blog so that people can, you know, listen to the show and then go read the blog and get those lessons just based on these notes. But, you know, I mean, I've been working with Bob for 10 years, and I just picked up a bunch of really, really great stuff. This is a show you want to probably listen to two or three times. Yeah, you know, you and I were just uh, remarking about the uh, all the great guests we've had this month, and I thought, well, here we have The Godfather in our backyard, and we've never really had a chance to tell the story. So uh, great stuff, and uh, thanks, Bob, for your, uh, your candor and your wisdom and your continued uh, dedication to uh, spreading the word. Thanks, Robert. This has been great fun. It's uh, it's always fun to do shows with you guys. Most of them seem to be over in a rush. This one wasn't any different. Well, if you want a chance to meet the godfather of real estate, he'll be hanging out with us on our Dallas field trip the first weekend of May. It's right around the corner, but there's still time to get in. Just go to the website at realestateguysradio.com, click events, and you'll see our field trip to Dallas. Also, got some field trips coming up to beautiful Belize, to Atlanta, Georgia, to Memphis again in the fall. A great way to come out and see a marketplace and uh, get around uh, people and start to see how relationships really manifest. Hey, big thanks to uh, our resource center and all the folks that help us out there bringing you the show. Thanks to our engineer team and uh, next week on the real estate guys we start our may and we're excited about it. april's been a really fun uh, time for us to get around the right brains we'll see what may brings next week on the real estate guys radio program until then go out and make some equity happen this episode of the real estate guys radio show is brought to you by paradigm life powerful cash management strategies using life insurance learn more at beyourbank.com Mid-South Home Buyers, low-cost, turnkey cash flow properties in Memphis, Tennessee. Corporate Direct, asset protection strategies for real estate investors from attorney and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton. Find these and other great companies under the Resources tab at realestateguysradio.com. To learn how you can expose your product or service to the Real Estate Guys audience, call 888-489-7723, extension 4. That's 888-489-7723, extension 4. Or use the feedback page at realestateguysradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week right here on the Real Estate Guys Radio Show.